Welcome to Lineage. I'm your host, Shani Jamila. This show features intimate, in-depth interviews about the idea of home with some of New York's most imaginative thinkers. I talk with my neighbors and fellow artists about how the city impacts their work and how their work impacts the world. Today, my guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and musician, Tayemba Jess. Tayemba is the author of two books, Lead Belly and Olio. A Kaveh Khanum and NYU alum, he's currently a professor of English at the College of Staten Island. This conversation with Tayemba perfectly encapsulates why I post about this podcast with two hashtags, contemporary art and black history. Not only am I talking to someone who literally will be in our history books, but his work is very specifically tied to our undertold stories. Did you know the first Underground Railroad actually went south? How familiar are you with tales of successful slave revolts? Today, we're talking about what Tayamba terms some of the most neglected stories in Black history. But first, we nerd out on the poetic form, picking right up where we left off in part one of our conversation, talking about his mentor, poet Sterling Plump, and his first publication, When Niggas Love Revolution Like They Love the Bulls. And now, on to the show. Well, it sounds like in the poetry that you were writing in that time, it was overtly political, right? Right. I'm just looking at the title of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? um, so how how much was that influenced by that blues aesthetic and by the teachings of, of Sterling? Greatly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, greatly because, um, for instance, Sterling wrote a lot about living musicians that were in the city of Chicago. And what I decided to do was to take a step back and write about deceased musicians. You know, that's most of what I've written about is people who've been dead for about 100 years. Uh, yeah. That's real. Uh-huh. Um, and I wanted to, um, I guess I would see myself some in conversation with Sterling in the way that he's he's, he, he 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 I think he has kind of a harder task cuz he's taking on these living these living sources that are able to converse with him directly you know when i'm just going back in the past and i'm going in the archives and i'm bringing back voices that you know they can't you know can't have a conversation with them right so the conversation on their end is no longer is is only existing through their work Right or any kind of other records that we could come up with, but kind it's 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 about archiving the story of how the sound got to be the sound, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I think you know with Sterling, I think he's writing about these other musicians, but really he's really also writing about his own story. And I think also you know in in Lead Belly, I was you know writing about another musician, but I was also writing about my own story. I was talking about an artist who had to learn how to discipline himself in order to control his art to make his art work for himself hmm. and that's essentially what I was trying to do I uh, love what you were just talking about in terms of collaborating with people who uh, are our ancestors now you know that I'm working on a project about my own family history and lineage and which is extensive yes <laughs> it's extensive we're looking at 220 years of, of records that my 
my grandmother, uh, who was a genealogist, kept. Um, But uh, it very much involves this process of um, thinking about and working with, and I feel like collaborating with, uh, people who are no longer on this plane. Um, So I'm curious to know more about your interactions there on that with your own work uh well I guess the way I've experienced it thus far is uh the act of researching as much as I can about the people that I'm writing about and trying to identify usually it has to do with places in their life where they had to make difficult decisions you know, we all go through, there are all times in our, our lives when we make a decision that we either know or we don't know, but, but we have some hint as to the fact that it's going to change the rest of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And so those are, those are turning points. And I'm thinking about how did they feel when they had to make, make, make these decisions? How did they feel? What were they, what was... What were the equations in their mind? Because sometimes you're talking about dignity versus survival. You know, sometimes yeah. you're talking about um, um, life or death, or even just the idea of of trying to marshal your ingenuity to the point where it can rise up to match some match the conversation of the other people you're with so I'm thinking about musicians trying to cut heads you mm. know what I'm saying how do they what is going through their mind how do they how do they match each other you know what is going what is that what does that stress feel like you know so I'm thinking about major decisions they have to make times when they're under a lot of pressure ex- exploring those those um those circumstances and those events and then coming out with something a poem that approximates that or that is about that generally that's 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 where I've what I've done that's what I tried to do um I think that's a perfect segue into Olio uh. <laughs> the work that you did there um talk to me about your journey to that book Circuitous. <laughs> Circuitous. Um, <clears throat> and that, that was 2016. 2016. Um, that book started as really an exploration of the music that inspired Lead Belly. So you're talking about people who were, who were performing or were in the world doing their work of, of artistic production while before uh, Lead Belly was born and um, and not too long after he was born. So roughly from 18, the end of the Civil War up until World War One. And what, the thing that, that intrigued me about that project was trying to discover, you know, when we think about black music, the first thing we think about is black music that we've heard yeah and black musicians that we've heard Mm -hmm. and what intrigued me about 
this was what and I, is that these were musicians that nobody's heard any recordings of anything they did except for one Bert Williams there's still some recordings of him out there but nobody in that book was actually physically recorded so you know you're going back to an era where in order to hear the music you had to be directly in front of the person the music wasn't disembodied from the person but uh, you're also um, you're you're talking about um, a generation of black folks who who's who want to find their humanity in the arts, despite probably everything that the world was telling them, <laughs> you know, about you know the theories of industrial education, you know, not to mention the the idea that. Uh, that black folks don't have the intellect to to perform at a high level on these instruments, you know. When really we were just, you know, innovating the hell out of all these all these forms that were uh, suddenly coming into our into our grasp. Pianos, like owning a piano, or own, or owning. Uh, a violin or a or a banjo or a guitar or a harmonica mm -hmm. you know even just owning the ability to uh to play the song that you want to play when you want to play it and for who you want to play it for just owning that that's a life lesson i mean so i'm 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 that that's what olio is is interested in is what does that journey look like what does it look like with uh, the specter of the minstrel show, you know, looming and leering behind every uh, every one of these uh, uh, characters, and how do they combat against that that dehumanization, and how do they see their uh, their journey towards finding their own humanity in their art? Um. The way that you approach the story in this particular book is is so extraordinary to me. The the syncopated sonnets um, that you've written, and then also, and these are two separate questions that I'm just kind of merging into one. But the syncopated sonnets, and then also the literal like form. As a visual artist, I'm in love with the idea that you can tear out these poems and literally physically reshape them into three dimensional objects. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that was a. Uh, <laughs> I had made a decision to uh, go contrapuntal, <laughs> <laughs> and what that means for the audience is having one. Say, if you look at look at your left hand and imagine that's a poem, and look at your right hand, imagine that's a separate poem, but putting them together. And imagine that they read all the way across both hands as one coherent poem. Mm. That's what a contrapuntal poem. One is one point, left hand is one point, right hand is, is another point, and then together they're contrapuntal. So that you're have, imagining two different people in conversation, having their own internal conversation, but that internal conversation, when they are together, becoming one joint conversation that is coherent. And then sometimes reads 
forward and backwards and diagonally and in different directions. And in other times, uh, forms uh, what would be uh, known as a uh, uh, flat torus, mm -hmm. T-O-R-U-S, <clears throat> which can be manipulated into an actual torus. Torus is just, imagine the shape of an inner tube mm -hmm. or a donut. And that is this form that the that the actual poem takes when taken out of the book and manipulated into this this shape. And then from that shape manipulated into a Mobius strip. So it's about <clears throat> it's about manipulating language in such a way that uh, it becomes self-preserving and confounding at the same time. And you're doing that as you're literally talking about conjoined twins. So the yes. poems themselves embody. Yes. And conjoined twins become, is a series of poems uh, that becomes ekphrastic in a way. It becomes, it becomes a concrete poem that's about, that envisions the bodies of, the McCoy twins were, were Pygopagus twins. They were sisters that were born into slavery in 1849 in North Carolina. Uh, they were forced to tour in uh, freak shows when they were very, very young, toddler age, more or less, up until the time of their liberation from uh, slavery, around 15 or 16. And then they elected to go on the uh, freak show circuit of their own volition, but with papers that verified that they were indeed Pygopagus, so they no longer had to be subject to, subject to the kind of... Uh, um, uh, examinations, quote unquote, mm. that they would be subject to when they were traveling previously. And they later on became very famous and they brought the, uh, with the money that they made from their fame, they bought the plantation upon which they had once been owned. And that, fam that land is still with some of the family today. Oh, dope. Yeah, yeah. So I, I so, um, the the poems in the book form a kind of uh, structure that looks like that mimics the body of the McCoy twins and that there's two separate heads, a conjoined middle and two separate bases. You're saying it so matter of factly. I just want the audience to know when I first came across this book, which um, shout out to Carolyn Butts from African Voices uh, magazine. She asked me to do a book review on it. Yeah. And, Thank you for that review, incidentally. Oh, all good. That was my pleasure. Um, but anyway, so she, she gives me a copy of this book, and I was traveling. I took it with me on my travels. And I remember, um, ordinarily when I'm traveling, I do as best I can to be out and about in the place where I'm going. I couldn't leave the damn book <laughs> to oh, go like, into Senegal. It was, it was an extraordinary, like, you're reading it, and your mind is blown. You can go up you can go down you can go diagonal you can go horizontal i've literally never seen anybody do anything like this thank you how how <laughs> imagination and desperation <laughs> uh yeah a lot of a lot of you know there's actually there's a little story behind that it has to do with yousef mm. kumanyaka yeah mm -hmm. uh when i came back to town when I came, when I came back to uh, New York, I guess this brings us to New York. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I got a job, College of Staten Island. But this is around 2009, and then I think I had a, uh, I had a reading schedule. It's you can find it online. It's uh, Page Meets Stage, mm-hmm. me and Yusef Komunyaka. I was very, 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 very nervous because I didn't have very much written, and uh, I had to get ready for this gig with Yusef Komunyaka. I didn't know what the hell I was gonna do. Long story short, I end up, you know, I wrote the first contrapuntal sonnets, which are about Blind Tom, for that particular reading. Is there a moment in the writing of it where you realize, wait a minute, I think if I structure it in this way, these two things can go together? Like, what was that aha moment? (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. Uh, Well, there was a moment when I realized that they could read down and up. Mm -hmm. I remember that distinctly. I was... uh, you know, you know, I, I, my process is I take the poems when I finish the poem, I, I t- tape it to the wall, and it stays in my region, so to speak, so I can come back over it and over and over. And usually, when I'm working on a poem, it's like you know, it's uh, I start off in you know writing in pencil or ink, and then I just you know go to you know I just it's on me all the time in a notebook. So you're going over it over and 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 over again. So it's probably like three o'clock in the morning, you know, and I realize, wait a minute. If I just change this word and that word and that word and this word, then it can go in multiple directions. And I tried it, so you know. And then I was when I was when a light bulb went off. I was like, oh, okay. So now I have this kind of plasticity here that allows the form to go in different ways. Huh. So if I did this, what else can I do? So your process is very much like that of a visual artist in a sense. Like when I'm making a painting, for instance, or a collage, I put it on the wall, look at it, consider it, step away from it, return to it. Gotta step away. Yeah. You know, like your brain has to work on it. Your brain is working on it when you're not looking at it subconsciously. Sometimes you put it away for a week and you come back and you're like, oh, okay. If I just do move this over here, then that solves that problem and gets me to this and that faster or in a more elegant way. And I get to say two things instead of one. Mm-hmm. That's always a favorite. Or even three things instead of one. That's <laughs> even better, you know? But uh, yeah, I can see that in your collages, which are quite electrifying. Oh, thank you. Yes. Was there, um, was it that a moment, the moment that you just described, was it the moment where you could feel your life changing as we were talking about earlier? I I felt like, um, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I can, if I can pull this off. See, the thing is that I, it was, it was always like this. It's like, Okay, writing the first contrapuntal sign, it was like, okay, I've never tried. I did some contrapuntals in lead, but I didn't. I was like, doing in form would be crazy. And I was like, okay, I might as well try it. So if I try it, then okay, okay, let's try get through one quatrain. The thing is, if you can get through one quatrain, then you should probably be able to do two. If you can get through two, there's a good chance you get through three. If you get through three, then you got two lines left in a sonnet. 
boom, right? So I got through the first quatrain. I was like, oh, okay. And you just keep hitting it and hitting it, hitting it, hitting it, hitting it, hitting it, hitting it. And many, 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 many drafts later, you know, you come out with at least a rough where you got the basics down. And then you put that on the wall and then you come back to it over and over and over and just like little tiny, 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 like changes, you know, to just try and make it, the objective was to make it as smooth a transition between the two poems as possible, you know, so that the reader doesn't have to work really, really hard in order to see the connection, you know, and that's, that's what I was going for. So like that just process I just described was like when I saw that it, it not, that I could go in multiple directions, what I felt was like, okay, if I can do it for this poem, then chances are I can do it for another poem. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Then it becomes a question of, well, if I can do it for this kind of poem, can I do it for another kind of poem? If I can do it for a sonnet, can I do it for a hustle? You know, if I can do it for a hustle, can I do it for a uh, uh, a uh, golden shovel? What is that? What describe a golden the form? shovel? Mm-hmm. That's a form made by. Well, it comes from Gwendolyn Brooks, mm. but Terence Hayes wrote a beautiful poem. He's based so off of yeah, Terence. Yeah. But he, based off of that poem, in which every word of the poem of 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 you know what's how's the Gwendolyn Brooks poem go? We quit school. No, we real we cool. cool. We quit school. We lurk late. We strike straight. We, we drink gin. We drink gin. We, we, you know. I we, remember we jazz June. We, we jazz soon. June, yeah. Mm-hmm. We thin gin. There's another line in there. And then we jazz June. We die soon. Mm-hmm. Anyway, took every word from that and made it the last word in a poem of his own construction. Mm-hmm. Right. So I did the same thing in double columns with using Dunbar. You know, so it's about, okay, I did this. If I did this, then it's only a little tiny, tiny hop between doing that, that progression and the next progression and the next progression and the next progression. So that's what, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah. I want to invite you to read something from Olio. Oh. Do you have any one in particular that you like to go to or? If you have a choice, I'd be down to read what you're, you're down I picked a piece in advance. Okay. Uh, one of the ones about Millie and Christine McCoy, and you'll have to ignore all my drawings around your work. Okay. <laughs> I write in the margins as I read. So I'll give I'll give you an example of. Uh, you have to listen closely, and you'll hear. There's two different voices here, but first I'm going to read Millie's. If you you will imagine, dear audience, uh, a poem that looks a little bit like an X. Mm-hmm. You know, now, on one side of the poem is the voice of Millie Christine, uh, Millie McCoy, and the other side, side is Christine McCoy. I'm going to read Millie's side first, uh, which will include the lines that they have, that they read together. Okay, so. We've mended two songs in the one dark skin. 
leading soprano into, into contralto, with a fused in blood and body from one thrum stem budding twin blooms of song. Redoubled rows descended from raw carnage of the south, burst and opened our freedom. We sing past rage, grown from hard labor that made our mother shout, spent with awe. We hymn to pay soft homage to the work song's aria. It leaves us soaked in history like our father's sweat born of and beyond the flesh. We are just two women singing truths we can't forget from plantation to grave. Lord, here we are, free twin sisters who've heard our voices far. If you read Christine's side of this uh, poem. Ride the wake of each other's rhythm, beating our hearts syncopated tempo. We're fused in blood and body from one thrum stem, budding twin blooms of song. We're double rows with a music all our own, with our mouths seeped in the glow of hand-me-down courage, grown from hard labor that made our mother shout, spent with awe. We hymn to pay soft homage to the work song's aria. It leaves us drenched in spiritual acapellas, soaked in history like our father's sweat, flowing soul from bone through skin. We pay debts born of and beyond the flesh. We are just two women singing truths we can't forget from bro broken chattel to circus stars. We sing straight from this nation's barbed wired heart. Now, what I'm going to read is the combination of Millie and Christine McCoy together. And it reads as such. We've mended two songs in the one dark skin. We ride the wake of each other's rhythm, bleeding soprano into contralto, beating our hearts syncopated tempo, we're fused in blood and body from one thrum stem budding twin blooms of song. We're double rows descended from raw carnage of the south, with a music all our own, with our mouths bursting open our freedom, we sing past rage, seeped in the glow of hand-me-down courage, grown from hard labor that made our mother shout, spent with awe. We hymn to pay soft homage to the work song's aria. It leaves us drenched in spiritual acapellas, soaked in history like our father's sweat, flowing soul from bone through skin. We pay debts born of and beyond the flesh. We are just two women singing truths we can't forget from plantation to grave. Lord, here we are. From broken chattel to circus stars, free twin sisters who've heard our voices far, we sing straight from this nation's barbed-wired heart. Then comes that moment where you get not a phone call. I've heard you say in previous interviews, but a text from your peoples. Like <laughs> it was the blackest shit ever. Yeah, like, Pulitzer so was, Black. Yes, Patrick Rosal. <laughs> Shout out to you, Patrick. Uh, yeah, they don't send you no uh, no letters, no phone call, no 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 email, no nothing. They just announce it. Pulitzer Prize. Mm. So that was uh, quite a shock. And my friend Patrick Rosal, fantastic poet, my man. And uh, he uh, texted me, and then I went online. They do a, they do stream it online now. I went online and tickety tackety tickety, <laughs> looked it up and saw them say my name. So I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> let me call all my peoples. Uh huh. Yeah. So. That was a good day. What was Definitely. that feeling? Uh, awesomely amazing and a little, you know, it's also, I think, you know, um, 
it's not acknowledgement or knowledge that you know <laughs> ironically it's like uh, now I gotta up up my game <laughs> you know what I mean mm-hmm. you gotta try and bring it to another level cause uh, it's good it's I mean it's really it's been really wonderful really amazing but it's uh, it's also you know a lot of responsibility I, I think attached to it that I have to really um, be careful not to squander so now you're working on a project about the black Seminoles yes Yes, I am, which I fr- think, frankly, is one of the most astonishingly neglected stories of black history in this country that there ever has been. Talk about multiple generations fighting for their freedom in, in this country uh, for over, really over about 150 years. And being successful in drawing a treaty with the United States, and and then moving from Florida to Oklahoma, then moving down to Mexico, and uh, just uh, with with amazing all kinds of amazing little stories in between. Well, let's talk a bit about that migration story. I mean, that right. didn't just happen. No. Well, essentially what we're talking about is, re, you know, I think one thing with 1619 is they were talking about re-understanding the history of America. Last night at the New York Times. Yeah, the New York Times, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, and one I, one way I think is critical to understand is that the idea that the first underground railroad ran south to Florida. Because you're talking about like 1600s, right? Slavery was all over the colonies, right? Mm-hmm. However, Florida was still in the, the dominion of Spain. So Spain said, and also Spain needed to populate that particular spit of land that they had. First, first uh, European settlement in in the United States is St. Augustine. Yeah. Talk about an undertold story. Yeah, well, uh, St. Augustine became the site where Spain said, if you make it down to St. Augustine and become a Spanish citizen and convert to Catholicism, you're free. Mm. So that started a flood of black folks fleeing the, uh, the plantations in South Carolina, cutting all the way through Georgia, you know, and going down to live in St. Augustine, free. Wow. Right? Now, uh, I'm gonna, I'm not going to get the timeline exactly right, but a- after a certain amount of time, Spain ceded that land, right, and left. And during which times, a bunch, a lot of the black folks left and went to the Bahamas, etc., other places. Um, uh, however, um, some of them stayed. And they stayed there with the Creek Indians, the Lower Creeks, which were called Seminoles. And they stayed in that area. You're talking uh, all the way to the to the 1850s, mm. during which time they had successive wars, three successive wars, with the United States, defending their territory, defending their people, wow. trying to stay free, because they knew if they were captured, 
they would be dragged back into slavery, which did happen. You know, there was some, there were some, many that were captured and, and dragged back into slavery. But they, it was one of the longest, well, it was the longest Native American war, but specifically because there were a lot of black folks down there that were fighting for their lives mm. and were not going to go back into slavery. So after, uh, I want to say mid-1850s, they sign a treaty finally in which they are with the Seminoles, you know, are removed to Oklahoma. And when they arrive there, civil war hasn't happened yet. So there's still folks that want to drag them back into slavery. They're just, they like, they look like money just walking around free. Wow. You know wow. what I'm saying? Wow. Yeah. So people are coming in to essentially poach them into slavery, so to speak. So they Ooh. once again decide to pick up camp, about 200 of them, and move down south across the border. And, and they settle in a little town, which is still there today, called Nacimiento de los Negros. Okay. In so Mexico. they had a few, there's a few figures that stand out in this story. One is named Abraham, who was one of the, the early, earlier leaders in Florida. Another one, that, one named John Horse or Juan Cavallo. Another one, another named Kwakuchi, Wildcat. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, you kind of, you know, you're also dealing with the legacy of Osceola. Uh, great Native American chief, right? Who had a black wife, right? So you're talking about all of these. You're talking about a black and red kind of maroon. <laughs> Very convenient there, but true. Black and red uh, 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 alliance that yeah. fought against. You know, okay, for instance, Dade County. You've heard of Dade County, right? Of course. Right. Well, how did it get that name? I have no idea. There was a Lieutenant Colonel Dade who went down in that area with a whole crew of of American soldiers specifically to bring back escaped slaves. Well, they didn't make it back. And neither did hardly any of his crew. Mm. And hence, it is now named Dade County. I may be getting this wrong. Wasn't that the site of the hanging chads in that contested election? That was in Florida. I think it was in. I think it was Dade County. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Very interesting history down there. Now I I just actually came back from St. Augustine. Okay. And uh, there is still one of the now. There's the remnants or the remains. Not not even really very much of that. Of uh, one of the forts where they were, uh, where they, that they occupied, Fort Mose, right? And that was hit by a cannonball at a certain point, and the cannonball went directly into their their artillery depot, and it's the whole thing blew up, right? But you know, you're talking about hundreds of homes, you know, being set up around around that fort. So you're talking about multiple generations I mean I just want to to put it in very succinctly what I'm talking about is the first and it's not not me that's saying that you can look up several books that will testify this 
a long history of black people fleeing from the South to go further South and find refuge in the swamps of Florida, right? Staying there for generation after generation after generation, right? And then uh, 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 allying with the Creeks, fighting in several wars, right? And then moving to Oklahoma and then moving to Mexico. I, I, okay, I, I visit, visited Fort Marion when I was down in Florida. And what I, was, what I remember thinking is, like, okay, I, I have a picture of one of the windows in Fort Marion, which is apparently just like or may have been the actual window where several Seminoles, including Kwakuchi and John Horse, escaped. It's a huge fort. It's, a, it's actually a very, very sophisticated fort. Looks like a star, hmm. Fort Marion, and uh, they they had to starve themselves <laughs> to be able to fit through these windows, which are about ten or fifteen feet off the ground. Lord, it's a day, right? Exactly. And I think one thing that intrigued me was the fact that 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 should have been part of the story of that particular fort. There, there should be, you know. It should be commemorated. Of course. That's, yeah. I mean, talk about complete commitment to a struggle. Right, right. So, you know, but we're, once again, we're talking about that one of the things that that project yesterday is about, which is what I think is a project of a lot of black writers, is re-understanding our history mm-hmm. and, and approaching that re-understanding through fiction and through poetry, right? And trying to bring that history and and put it into the consciousness of our people today so we can understand. Now, you know, when you talk about slave revolt, what I'm talking about with the Seminoles is the most successful slave revolt in American history Mm. by far, okay? They ended up in really an independent nation state that fought several wars and came to an agreement or came to a treaty and then uh, then moved. That's what I'm talking about. I've literally been holding the back of my head as you've been telling the story. I mean, mind blown. Um, largely because, and I recall you saying this on stage last night at the 1619 Project launch, I'm angry that right. this is a story that we don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sit I mean it's not it's not like it's it's <laughs> how should I say it? It's um saddened maybe more than angry. Yeah, it's it's not it's not remote history at all. We got descendants of uh black Seminoles in Brackettville, Texas right now. Mm. As well as as down there in uh in uh Nacimiento de los Negros. Because this comes back to the fundamental premise of this show, which is thinking about the idea of home, right? Uh-huh. How we construct it, how we make it, how we conceive of ourselves inside of it, and what is the role of art in helping to shape that, you know? So one part would be obviously elevating these kinds of stories that deserve a far greater platform. But then also it's just thinking on a much more basic level about how would it have informed our development right. had we known? Right, well... 
that's part of the question we were posing for the next 400 years yeah right how will it how will it impact like when when we talk about when these stories come into our popular you know culture when they come into our our everyday understanding of what this place is called America right how does that change our reaction to the uh, the uh, political structure we find ourselves in how, uh, do we do we not find examples from the past that can help us navigate the present and the future right that's that's the type of things that we're we're thinking about you know when we, when we go and look at these stories and you know when I think of in my mind when we think of Frederick Douglass we should also think of John Horse hmm. you know in my mind when we think of you know Nat Turner we should also think of Abraham you who know, are the women in the Seminole story that is uh, that is a question that I am trying to figure out because mm-hmm. I'm going to be 100% with you I have not been able to unearth as many of those biographies as I would like to. So that is going to be a, a challenge for me to try to understand and try to uh, get to the bottom of. I guess it all circles back together to this idea of undertold, underwritten right. stories. Because I know, yeah. I know that this the sisters is in there oh, doing it. Yeah. The question is, I mean, I don't, I just, in the historical record at this point, I have not been able to ascertain names, so to speak, not directly, but that is part of my mission. Word. I can't wait to see what you do with this. Neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> so as we wrap up, um, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of kind of the courage that it takes, but also um, the duty that we have for those of us who've chosen to make a life in the arts, Mm. Um, particularly given, particularly for those of us um, from communities where illiteracy was mandated, Mm. where creativity was uh, legislated against. What do you, how do you think of your life as a poet and as a writer? I'm very blessed, to be honest. I, I'm be real. I'm one of the luckiest people I I know doing this. I do feel that I have a kind of calling towards the the historical tale, and that is where I'm I'm focused, and I have the opportunity to uh, make a dent, make a difference in the way we understand our presence in this country and the way we understand the uh, the fate of this country excuse me so I, I think that um, I think when I when I'm writing what I'm thinking is my major responsibility is towards my own accurate understanding of the history as accurate as I, it can be at this particular moment you know and to my own highest aesthetic standards. Usually, if I'm interested, then other people are interested. 
you know what I'm saying? So uh, that's that's not that's what I think is our responsibility is to live up to our highest, the highest standards we can create for ourselves, and to and to tell the truth the best way we know how. That's that's what I can say. Thank you, friend. Thank you. Glad you were here. It's been real. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on iTunes. It helps others discover this show. You can also follow us on the socials at Lineage Podcast and visit lineagepodcast.com for information about live events, to see portraits I've made of our guests, and to become a patron of this broadcast. For more from me, head on over to shawneejamila.com. The inaugural season of Lineage is brought to you by the generosity of our campaign supporters, with special thanks to our founder circle. Amika Carter, Ayana Dixon, Vera Grant, Lawanda Hodges, Ayana Minor, Wendell and Helen O'Neill, Rimani Rogers, Jimmy and Lee Sutton, Chantal Vera, Stacey Burton-White, and our associate producers, the BK Fam. Graphic design by Tony Moore Images, original music composed by Cody Got Beats.